0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. We're here at the ADSA uh, Scientific Meetings in Ottawa, Canada this week, and we've been having conversations with students all week about the abstracts that they've submitted. Now this is um, part two of of two parts, so if you've missed part one, please go back and listen to that. My co-host for this session is going to be Dr. Pete Morrow, he's a tech service representative for Balchem, and my guest today is Dr. Heather White and Dr. Billy Brown. Heather, you really need no introduction, but uh, if you wouldn't mind, give an introduction to our audience, and then also tell us a little bit about Billy. How'd you get to know him and uh, some of the work that he's done for you?
1: Yeah, great, thank you. uh, First of all, for having us here and uh, for your interest in the research. I'm Heather White. I am faculty at University of Wisconsin-Madison in the area of nutritional physiology, so I'm a professor there. Just hit my 10-year mark earlier this year, so that's good. I do teaching and research there and serve as the faculty director for the Dairy Innovation Hub. So as a part of my research program, always looking for great additions to the lab, grad students, postdocs. Uh, Billy joined the lab and bravely joined without ever having met any of us in person, thanks to COVID. So Billy and I met by Zoom, and uh, we just had a lot of of trust in the situation there. He may or may not tell you that was well-placed trust, (laughs) Uh, but he came to Wisconsin and jumped right into a cow study. It was in fact the cow study that yielded the calves we'll be talking about today. So he spent about a year and a half with us uh, in Wisconsin and is now faculty at Kansas State. So let him tell you a little bit more about himself.
2: Yeah, go ahead. Bob. I was really grateful that they weren't all holograms. They were real when I moved to Wisconsin, but uh, no, I'm a faculty member at Kansas State University. I'm primarily teaching, 60% teaching, but do have a research appointment. So we're trying to get that off the ground, uh, launching that now and we'll be starting a calf starter grain study with uh, my first grad student here in a couple of weeks. So we're excited about that. All right,
0: very well. Hey, would you mind giving us then uh, an overview of the abstract that was presented here? Was it was it a presentation or a poster?
2: A poster. It was a yeah. poster, yeah. Okay. So uh, we're really excited about those results, but, uh, and we've, we've had a number of uh, abstracts that have resulted of that. But uh, to kind of give you some cliff notes, uh, we uh, fed uh, several varieties of, of choline, uh, traditional reassure, and then a, a prototype of that, more concentrated prototype, to uh, prepartum dairy cows uh, for three weeks prepartum. And then we took the resulting calves uh, from those cows and tracked them through uh, a period of time. And spe- specifically for this poster that we're talking about, we were looking at Holstein and Angus cross calves. Um, and so we tracked their growth uh, for. Uh, a number of months and then we fed them a finishing diet and then we took them to slaughter and looked at carcass characteristics uh, of those animals and uh, how that uh, changed uh, their carcass overall so really the, the first of its kind uh, research in this area and we were really excited to be able to be a part of it okay just to
0: kind of uh to kind of summarize so so these animals were the mothers were fed the choline yep. prepartum, and then the calves then no yeah, or what uh, they, was it? The... They
2: all had a standard diet. They were raised similarly. So, all the treatments were really based upon uh, the dam uh, feeding uh, while those calves were in utero. So, this concept, uh, so this epigenetic, concept, this of a... epigenetic thing, yeah. this concept developmental programming, which is starting to gain more traction. And we really have the perfect uh, environment with the dairy industry to, to really isolate these gestational effects uh, of the things that we do, can do through nutrition or management. Um, and really isolate those compared to other uh, species because we do raise those calves on a bottle uh, with uh, in a very homogenous way uh, throughout the rest of their lifespan. Uh, yeah. So a great model that we can we can leverage.
0: I'm kind of curious, did you have a hypothesis ahead of time of what kind of results you would see, or were you just kind of going into it to see what you would see? Well,
2: one of the things that we did know was uh, looking at some past literature from Florida, we had a, a good hunch that calves might have a little bit of a growth advantage. And, and we did see that in the first 10 months where there was some growth advantage. But other than that, um, uh, we didn't really know what we were going to see um and so one of the big things that we did note i'll go ahead and jump into some of those results if if that's okay um is uh, that at the time of harvest at least it didn't appear that there was uh, any change or or evidence of difference in, in the weight of those calves um, or the ribeye area, but we were seeing some differences in what well, appears to be fat metabolism. So uh, they had greater kidney, pelvic, and heart fat, uh, but they also had greater marbling. And that's the part that really excites us because there's very few ways to influence that marbling outside of genetics um, or just feeding them a higher energy diet, uh, right? We know that Wagyu and Angus are great uh, at marbling, um, but nutritionally speaking, uh, that's a little bit t- tougher. Uh, not to crack um, and so we did see an increase there and I think uh, that had have some pretty big implications long term for the beef and dairy industries when you talk about beef and dairy animals.
0: Heather, I'm just kind of curious if you've got a, a hypothesis as to what the mode of action might be.
1: Yeah, so we measured quite a few metabolites along the way, so Billy talked about the carcass quality uh, and, and carcass characteristics but we also took blood samples and we found some differences or tendencies for differences in things like insulin and glucose. And so when we're thinking about that, marbling plays into that. Like Billy said, we think this is probably related to glucose and lipid metabolism. That doesn't surprise us if we think about what we've seen in the lactating dairy cow, pre and postpartum. And when we think about some of the cell culture work we've done to look at the mechanism of action, when we supplement cells with choline or in vivo, Uh, We tend to see changes and differences in glucose metabolism and lipid metabolism that support milk production through increased gluconeogenesis, uh, increased oxidative capacity, increased VLDL export. So it wouldn't be surprising to think that that could be a hypothesis uh, for mechanism here. We talked about epigenetics earlier. We were also really interested to see if methylation patterns had changed because that's with choline being a methyl donor, that's also something that we would suspect. We looked at global methylation patterns in blood samples, so not targeted, not single gene up or down regulation, just global uh, methylation patterns. And we did observe an increase for that in the male offspring. Uh, We did not observe a difference in female offspring of either the Holstein or the beef cross. Now, uh, at first that's a little surprising because we saw changes in growth across all of the offspring. But we have to remember, first of all, that there were a lot of metabolic changes as well and metabolites that were changed. So there's probably more than one mechanism of action here. But also we know that across species, rodent models, sheep, humans, that the male offsprings are more likely to have increased global methylation uh, and be able to detect that. The females are much harder to detect the difference in methylation pattern, even if there's a difference in the growth outcome. So again, this is consistent with that across the board. at this point, I think there's probably a little bit of both of those, both uh, through methylation pattern changes, and we should definitely dive into those more in the future, and then maybe directly through changing glucose or lipid met- metabolism pathways.
3: Do you think this you'd see similar results from feeding choline to finishing cattle, or is it just an epigenetic response?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a little bit of a tough one to guess, right, because we probably have uh, the opportunity for a big impact through the fetal programming like Billy mentioned earlier, that's an opportunity for us to impact the animal when it is both growing through a big growth phase in utero, but also uh, setting kind of the stage for lifelong growth and metabolism. And so um, if we have an effect there with something, we don't always see the same effect, depending on what nutrient we're talking about, later by feeding it directly. Uh, But to my knowledge, we haven't fed, or at least in the published literature, you know, maybe there's some stuff hiding we can dig out, but in the published literature, there's not cases where we fed choline in the finishing stage in controlled randomized studies. So we either need to go back and see if we've done that in the past, maybe in beef animals, and we can look at it again here uh, in the future. So I think it's, it's probably worth exploring.
0: Yeah, thinking about a future, so I guess there's a lot more things to understand. What does the next step in research look like?
2: Yeah, well, I think the world is our oyster at this point. You know, these are exciting results, but they're, you know, in a way, uh, fairly preliminary results, too. So I think, yeah. you know, some of this is um, uh, just maybe taking a different approach at it, maybe looking at a different stage or uh, a different species and, and uh, trying to see if we can re- replicate this at least. And, and, um, and, and then I think diving in into some specific uh, tissues and, and understanding what's happening in those tissues uh, metabolically, what's happening from a um, uh, DNA methylation standpoint, and, and uh, trying to get a better picture um, and, and digging down uh, deeper into those a little bit better. So uh, it's one of those situations where there's so many different avenues uh, you can start with. Where do you start to narrow it down uh, yeah. a little bit?
1: Yeah. So. I think if I can add to that, one thing to point out is that this is a fairly small sample set. By the time we break it down, we had four maternal treatment groups. Each of those, so even though there was 24 cows in each treatment, which is powered for that, then we have offspring. Half of those are Holstein heifers, half are beef cross, half of those were female and half were male. So by the time we get to those final carcass characteristics, some of the treatment groups maybe had 12 animals in those groups, right? So first and foremost, we've got to recognize that this needs to be repeated. Just like Billy said, we, we need to make sure that this is, uh, this can be replicated across and that we observe the same thing. But I think that goes back to the original reason why we did this. So the beef cross animals following to slaughter was never a part of the original experimental design. In fact, we were only ever planning to follow all animals to weaning. Um, But one thing for me is that it was really full circle. My master's is in, uh, I had a meat science component and lipid metabolism component, spent a lot of time looking at both swine and beef carcasses. And we saw that out in the real world, people are breeding these beef cross animals And there's a complete dearth in benchmarks, right? There's not those average metrics for people to look at and say, okay, these beef cross animals are growing as we would expect, I'm meeting the benchmarks, I'm not, I'm average, I'm below, I'm above. Uh, And people really needed that data. And so we had an opportunity to do that. And For me, it was kind of full circle to go back to something I had looked at years ago. With Billy joining the lab and some background in beef and the ability to add capacity to the team, we were able to look at that so a big part of it was just to add baseline data, right? To get some data in the literature and to start building that database on what's there. The fact that we observed differences in slaughter from a pre-partum maternal treatment uh, was really rather exciting to be able to see significant differences from something we never fed to the calves themselves. So. That was really a pleasant surprise because we really were just looking for some baseline data. So first and foremost, I think we've got to make sure that this is repeatable across and then dig into it and see what kind of nutritional power is there, right?
0: Yeah, very exciting. Uh, you know, choline is one of those compounds, the more we learn about it, the more we uh, learn that we don't know a lot about it. So there's a lot left to know. I really appreciate you guys stopping by and spending some time with us today. So thanks a lot. Thanks Thank for having you. you guys.
4: Yeah, thanks. Tonight's podcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more.
0: Welcome back to the ADSA here in Ottawa. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Ryan Ordway. He's the Director of Strategic Accounts for Balcamp. We also have a guest here, Sergio Martinez-Montier-Gudo from New Mexico State. Was that close enough?
5: Close enough.
0: All right, good, good. Sergio, you were an invited uh, speaker here. Can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and then talk a little bit about uh, the presentation that you gave?
5: Okay. Well, I'm originally from Mexico. I was born and grew up in north part of Mexico, just right at the border between Mexico and Texas. Okay. And then I did graduate school in University of Burton, Canada. Okay. And then I moved to Ohio State, the Ohio State University.
0: So I also went to
5: Ohio State University, graduated way before you did, though. Okay. <laughs> so and then after after that, I, I started my career as a faculty in South Dakota State University for four years in dairy manufacturing. And then I moved to, I went to get a little bit closer to family, and then I saw the job description in New Mexico. And Excellent. There, since
6: yeah. 2020.
5: Yeah, good for you. Good for you. I moved in the middle of the pandemic. Oh, my okay. gosh. Okay.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about, have you given the presentation yet? Yes.
5: Yes, okay, yes. Uh, what was that all about? The presentation is, well, the name is Upcycling, and, and, and one way to look at it is upgrade and reuse, just not materials, but also services, with the idea would create a, a lot more sustainable uh, industry. Okay. Now, the concept is not new. The concept has been, uh, for a while now, where we play a lot in, in the literature is just coming with new terminologies of cycling and, and valorization. But, but the, the concept is, is the same. It has been used in other fields as well. So how we can take at something that is usually a waste, convert it into a valuable product. That, that, that's essentially the whole idea. Thank and what I do for that is, where well, the focus of my research is, uh, for instance, we, we take lactose, and nobody wants lactose anymore and convert it into sweeteners okay. that you can use in beverage or, uh, or, or other products. And it's come entirely from lactose. That, that's one of the attractive parts of, of what I'm doing. And, and the whole principle is, you the way I look at it is use the uh, chemical engineering principles to convert materials that will be a waste into upgrade and reuse. Mm, interesting.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned lactose. Uh, just kind of off the subject maybe it is on the subject since we are in a virtual pub but um, they are turning lactose into alcohol in the form of yep. vodka there's a company here called uh, vod cow and i also know that they put it into beers to kind of smooth it out and kind of create a different texture so
5: yeah well that product is pretty good that is pretty good <laughs> it's pretty good <laughs> yeah well and, and and that's the thing if, if we all wanted to be lactose free and then it, well, we focus on protein, we focus on fat, and the lactose is just getting accumulated and accumulated and accumulated because it's not going anywhere. Right. And we, 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 as an engineer, so has a raw material, what is my raw material? It's milk. I cannot get milk without lactose coming out of the cow. So the moment we remove it with technology, it's just surplus food, yeah. and then we have to do something with that surplus. And in, in a similar way, happened with the fat, uh, fat-free movement. In the, in the 90s that nobody wants fat and then we have a lot of fat and we don't know what to do with that fat. It's similar in, in this sense with the lactose now. Maybe in the future we will have a surplus of protein, who knows.
0: Yeah, are there other byproducts other than lactose? Yeah,
5: I also focus on phospholipids Okay. and dairy phospholipids specifically and the, the motivation behind that is uh, the health benefits. Uh, that is related with the consumption of phospholipids specifically dairy phospholipids because the distribution of those materials is different from the ones in plant now the issue in with the dairy industry there are concentration is very small and these diluted streams so usually it's a byproduct from buttermilk, milk from milk uh, from butter and, and and similar products so essentially it's a lot of water and a small amount of phospholipids If you think about it, you have to remove all the water, you have to remove lactose, you have to remove several to get a small portion. So that is not really attractive in terms of large volumes. But uh, part of the reason they're doing adaptive from from material science is using different solvents that you can extract the the phospholipids and also separate it so you don't have to do multiple steps.
0: Interesting. Sorry, Ryan. I invited yeah. you here for a reason, so.
7: Well, no, I, I uh, so I I lead our sustainability uh, program for our animal nutrition and health group, and I was at a uh, pet sustainability conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, and upcycling was the topic to uh, discuss, because it's the same exact thing. Um, you know, in the rendering industry, meat processing, they have all these trim meats and all these hides and things that have been traditionally get thrown in landfills. And now they're looking for how can we change our process it's really, as you said, it's, it's really an engineering uh, uh, thing to overcome and as we can utilize more of those, less goes into, not only does less go into the landfill, which is a cost, right, uh, to the producer of the processor, um, but it's actually getting value added to it and then being turned into companion animal treats and, and food and things like that. And I was thinking as you were talking that, you know, when I was uh, a, a, a real dairy nutritionist uh, before I you know retired from that to join Ball camp, um, Scott, you're supposed to laugh at that <laughs> comment, but um, you know, we I was dealing with whey all uh-huh. the time, right? And it was something that was just getting thrown away and it was a byproduct, it was a waste product, and that was probably the, you know, as I think back, that was probably one of the original upcycle products, and now, I mean, whey has more value for the most part than casein,
5: Or even even cheese. Yeah, exactly. But at that time, we didn't know upcycling exists. Right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) That's what I'm seeing It's an old concept, but the other part, if you look at the literature, what is uh, scientific literature, not upcycling, other fields are more progressive, For several reasons. I took a look at the the cycling in in construction, and it's a lot more sense grabbing a plastic, a design of plastic that can actually couple like a legal pieces and then build some materials and and, and small houses and things like that. Or or even clothing is a lot easier. But when it comes to food, how are you going to design a food to be reused? Uh, That that is hard to do in that way. So if, if, if well, for instance, Ikea designed uh, wooden stools that after some time you can turn into a bike. Mm-hmm. But those are designed with that purpose. Yes. Now with a food, how are you going to design this cow, vodka cow, to reuse somewhere else? It's hard to do it in that way. Yeah. So in, in that sense, the, the idea in other fields that design for second use is not applicable at this moment in food products. Now, you can take advantage of byproducts, waste, yes, yes, and using technology, but the idea just simply designing to be reused, that's that's a big challenge. Yeah, Yeah. interesting.
7: And you've got the shelf life stability issue as well, where- Safety issues. Plastics, you don't have a problem, but, and it could be a regulatory challenge. There's all kinds of other things that are coming into play with Mm -hmm. dairy products and and, uh, really across all the animal ag space, you know by products that you're trying to upcycle
5: and in general any any food material even agricultural waste needs to be if you're going to add it into food you have to get rid of pathogens
7: yep right exactly
5: or even allergens
7: yep is um so good question is turning waste oil mm-hmm. from cooking things like that into biofuels is that considered upcycling?
5: i would say yes yeah i would too now there are are already some organizations that are upcycling food association and they have their own uh, manifesto i'll say manifesto because it is written in a way like yeah this is what i wanted to do in my life but 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 the 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 issue to me is as long you are helping not going into directly to landfill i should be upcycling now the rules yeah those are just Technicalities, like what flavor you like, but the moment you are extending the life of that product, that should be upcycled, yeah. and that is directly related to sustainability. And that's another issue that we don't have. What is the right metric to see? We are, are we upcycling enough? Do we have enough metrics? Because normally, when sustainability, we come with uh, carbon footprint, water footprint, energy use, so on, and so on. So what about in this topic? I don't think we have metrics.
7: Yeah. I- I think the sky's the limit at this point, I, I agree. I don't think there are any metrics.
5: So we can create our own metrics of cycling.
7: Yep, and I mean, you know, Scott, Scott leads our marketing. It it really is marketing. I mean, it's a great story Mm -hmm. coming out of the dairy industry. You know, that's that's uh, continually seems to be under fire for
8: for whatever reason. For whatever reason,
7: right? (laughs) Methane, carbon emissions, Uh you name it. And Mm -hmm. you know, this is a really good story because in the past, I mean, we talked about oh, we use citrus waste and things like that. But there's not, you know, that's done behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. right? We're feeding a cow or we're feeding a pig or something. The citrus. you know, Ryan's but it doesn't really get into the public where something like this, something like the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cow vodka, um, it, there's there's something you can get in front of the consumer. Mm-hmm. And it's a really great, great opportunity for us as an industry to sort of raise that awareness that, hey, we are doing our part. You know, there's yes. there's things, we have a long ways to go, but it's a great thing that we're trying to do for the, you know, the world.
5: Yeah. But the other thing, for instance, is if, if you think about the, the dairy industry is under fire and all that, what would be this country without the dairy industry?
7: Right. I wouldn't have my belt. Yeah, I wouldn't have my shoes. Yes.
5: <laughs> jobs. <laughs> jobs. Taxes. Exactly. I mean, what is wrong in creating jobs and paying taxes? Yeah. Yeah. Since, since when that was bad?
0: Yeah. That sounds like a great place to start, man. We need the dairy industry. Yeah, we need it. Yeah. Sergio, well, this has been a fascinating topic. Uh, one that I think we could talk on for hours, especially with Ryan here. Yeah, He's that. passionate about sustainability, upcycling, all of that. This has been uh, a very interesting, looking forward to your talk tomorrow. I'm going right. to attend. So thank you for joining you. us today. Thank you.
5: Uh, my very pleasure. Nice, you. To you. Yeah. nice to meet you.
0: Welcome back to the ADSA. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Dr. Jeff Elliott, along with Dr. Jim Drakeley and Kelly Brost. Um, kind of the one neat thing that we were talking about early here is that uh, Jeff was actually uh, Dr. Drakeley's very, very first grad student, and so far Kelly is the last. So we got the alpha and the omega going on here right now. So uh, yeah. Uh, and, and all from the University of Illinois. Jim, what I'd like to do is to have you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. You probably don't need a, an introduction, but uh, there may be somebody out there who doesn't know your credentials.
9: Well, yeah, I've been at the University of Illinois for 34 years in research and teaching and uh, work in the areas of dry cow nutrition and management and baby calf nutrition.
0: And I think we were on a podcast uh I don't think it's dropped yet, but somebody referred to you as one of the icons well, uh, in the sure industry. That, that yeah. Another word for old. <laughs> I... uh, would you mind uh, introducing your student for that us? I sure can.
9: Yeah. Kelly Brost is a, a graduate student with me. She started out in a master's program, but now is, is uh, working in a direct to PhD program and working in the area of calf nutrition. So
0: now is the, are you given a poster or a presentation?
10: This is a poster. And it'll be tomorrow. Tomorrow,
0: Okay, and that's titled The Relationships Between Birth and Calving Season on First Lactation Performance of Holstein Dairy Cows in Midwestern U.S. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? How'd how'd this uh, project come about?
10: Sure. It actually developed from a project I had done last year, an analysis looking at average daily gain with calves in the season they were born in. And I wanted to take that a little bit further. So I did this analysis from data that our dairy had had and I took it back to 2009. So we had about 13 years worth of cows, first lactation cows that were used. And,
0: and how many did that represent? Um,
10: it was over 500, okay. around 520. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course that was pulling out quite a few that we didn't have all of the data on but we wanted to look at how those cows performed based on the season that they were born in. And then I went a little bit further and wanted to look at the season that they calved in, which can range a little bit depending on how old they were when they were bred, and look at basically their performance with milk components as far as um, percent fat, percent proteins, Also, when, how long they might have lasted, like their production life within the herd.
11: So just give us an overall view or summary of those results. Sure. And you did, you've already explained to us, kind of, you looked at it from a birth season and a calving season, and those differences were a little bit different. Yes. So kind of make sure you define each of those.
10: Overall, there was a correlation between both the first time lactation cows calving season, I'm sorry, their season of birth as well as calving season. There were minor differences between the reproduction aspect and the milk component aspect but again that goes into that how they overlap somewhat but can also be in different seasons. Um, I think this could be applied towards looking at the management practices when um, cows experience both of these or either one during an extremely hot summer season um we could and
11: so most of the let's say detrimental effects were for those summer it was season
10: for the summer season even when we looked at summer versus all non-summer seasons you could also see an impact on many of those areas when we looked at winter versus summer or winter versus all non-winter seasons we would see the exact opposite so those winter cows might have better milk components. They might be staying in the herd longer, um, being bred fewer times. So there was, it was just the opposite effect there.
11: Okay. And, you know, we talked earlier, do you think there is a colostrum effect as well as a in utero effect? Meaning, are we seeing different quality colostrum in those summer season animals?
10: Sure. I have, I did not personally look at that, but I have read about there being an effect. It seems like the more you layer on heat stress at different times, the, the harder it is for that cow to keep up. So there could definitely be a colostrum effect there. Yeah.
11: Jim, do you have any comments on from the colostrum effect?
9: No, I think that that's very possible and it might be embedded in, in what Kelly's looking at. Um, there there are data to show that classroom quality suffers during heat stress, so it's uh, it's a possibility. When we talk
0: about quality, you're talking about just lower levels of uh, IgG? Mostly? Correct. Yeah. yeah, correct. The other question I had real quick, I'm sorry. Um, and, and so we talked about this is an in, in-utero effect, or is this just an uh, impact on the animal after birth?
10: This was an impact on the animal um i have read quite a few papers on in utero effect i think it's very interesting and i think it could also play into again those layers right but i only looked at the effect on the animal so whether it was the season that they were born in or the season that they were that they first calved in Got it.
11: but wouldn't we'd almost have to imply there's an utero effect in that seasonal it's just they didn't look at that to see if right, there were right, differences right. but
9: right. it would have to be a part of it or, or likely as a part of it yeah, yeah yeah
0: it'd be it'd be hard to separate it i would right think. right yeah yeah
11: so another question i've got so let's assume there's some in utero effects or whatever's causing that um we observe those effects from management practice we see nutrition practices we see we know that's in utero effects there so is environment what we're talking about here is that an additional potential cause or is it part of management in the sense of heat stress because you mentioned heat stress several times
10: sure i i think you could really look at it either way but i do think it all comes together because that animal whether it's the calf or right before that that dry cow before she calves in the environment is playing a huge role. So, whether it's even just in the Midwestern USA, or if it's a management practice where the animal's just not being cooled efficiently. So, it could kind of go both ways. I think you really do need to look at the management for right. the season. It just all yeah. ties together. Yeah, it
9: does, yeah. for sure. And it's, if you think back farther, you know, if there's effects that occur during the first trimester, that puts it in a totally different season where where you would have possible impacts on the, the very early development of the, the fetus. Sure,
11: to, yep. Um, just, you looked at birth season, calving season. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like those each stand alone, or are they related?
10: I do think they can be related Um, Just because the birth season, once the calving season comes around, it might be, it might line up towards that same season. Otherwise, I think that they could also stand alone if there's not as much, if there's not as much impact in utero or in calving season that might be applied, that heat stress that's happening right before the cow's giving birth. If we didn't look at them that in depth for me to tell you which one, it just seemed to line up to where the seasons, the way they flowed and the way the results came out, that summer was the big hitter there. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Kelly,
0: I understand you just started your PhD program. So you've got some uh, studies ahead of you. What do you plan on looking uh, at in the future? Perhaps I should ask that of Jim. What, what, what's the research look like going forward?
10: Uh, We actually have two trials lined up that are kind of flowing into one another. The first one looking at vitamin B complex and a milk replacer. And following that in the post-weeding part, we're going to be looking at the use of plasma proteins in calf grower. Oh,
0: very interesting. Well, listen, I appreciate you guys joining us here today. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, Wish the best uh, with with your uh, future education and then whatever you decide to do after that. Thank you. Welcome back to the ADSA Scientific Sessions. I'm here with my co hosts Dr. Pete Morrow and Dr. Jeff Elliott. Also, our guest is Jair Perales-Hiron. Um, this is your second trip to the Real Science Exchange. Thank yeah. you very much for coming back for us yeah. again. Yeah.
6: No, thanks for having me. Okay.
0: Yeah, no worries. So listen, you gave a... Uh, have you given your presentation yet? Uh, yeah, I
6: gave my presentation Yes. Afternoon.
0: So can you kind of give us uh, an overview of the objective of that presentation? Or the, yeah. the trial yeah, that yeah, led yeah. to the presentation? Sure.
6: So we, we were focused on checking if there could be any interactions between a starch content of the diet and fatty acid supplementation in early lactation cows. So we used two different starch content. 22% as a low starch content and 28% as a high starch content using dry ground corn for uh, playing with the, with the starch content of the diet, and we fed a 70-20 uh, fatty acid supplement, 70% palmitic acid and 20% oleic acid at 2% of the, dry, the diet dry matter, and we did different treatments. We did like the lowest starch, no fat, highest starch, no fat, low starch, plus fat, and highest starch, plus fat. So those were our four treatments. So what
0: was the hypothesis? Uh, what led you to believe that there might be an interaction between yeah. starch and the fatty
6: yeah. acids? Uh, our idea was checking checking those possible interactions, and we were trying to, to prove the hypothesis that fatty acid supplementation uh, will increase or would increase the the yields of fat at meal in the low starch diet because that diet was like had a lower energy energy content energy okay. level and on the other side that the fatty acid supplementation uh, would increase the energy partition into body energy reserves in the highest starch diet because of the high uh, energy content of that diet okay. yeah so, did
11: you see that?
6: Uh, we did see the fat in the lowest starch diet, but in the highest starch, in the highest starch diet, is like we didn't see any effects on body weight. But also, those results are uh, in line with some previous results that we have shown uh, from our lab using that seventy twenty. Uh, fatty acid supplement compared to control diets because uh, Jonas de Souza and Dr. Locke they did an study checking the the fed of different inclusion levels of, uh, of oleic acid in one in one in, in a fatty acid blend they checked the 8010 palmitic oleic 70 uh, 20 and 60 30. They found that uh, increasing the oleic acid in that blend, has a linear effect in decreasing body weight loss during that period but if you see the means from the control treatment and the 70-20 they were the, the lines and uh, how, how the variable uh, behave in those three, in those two treatments were, were pretty close so do you have a hypothesis on your results where you saw
11: the tendency for the fat to increase milk in the low starch, yeah, but no effect on the high yeah, starch.
6: Yeah, what idea it was that probably there could be an increase in energy partitioning or probably in our case, there was no effect of, of, of the treatments on body weight loss. And that coincides with some things that we have seen before as well. So always we are trying to say, okay, probably there could be an additive effect and both treatments, I don't know, both inclusions could, I don't know improve potentially the animal response but in our case was like okay we didn't, we didn't see any effect on body weight loss and i think that's something that is positive as well
0: i hear real quick i, I did you a disservice I, I failed to mention that you are from michigan state university yes. working out of adam Locke's lab yes. so i wanted to make sure i got that in there my yeah. apologies
6: no it's okay go green go white
3: <laughs> exactly.
6: can you comment
3: about the high levels of really fat, milk fat percent in these cows, yeah, it was almost uh, shocking when you read the abstract. Yeah,
6: yeah, it, it's it's shocking. Both, uh, actually, in MSU, we've been working a lot on doing genetic selection and improving our health and those are the results that we that, that from that, that that kind of work that we've been doing as well. Yeah, also, yes, our diets, and that's something that <laughs> my uh, our our. Our farm manager is always happy when we are gonna do and study in transition cows because always our diets are rocking compared to the diets that they usually use, even our control diets. Oh. So, yeah, but that's the result of the selection that we've been doing, and also the help of our nutritionists as well. So we've been doing the work together, not only genetics, but also nutrition. Yeah, so Scott,
11: yeah. you may not have seen it, but I think the milk fat was 4.6%, 4.7. Yes. So
3: they were yes. extremely, yes. extremely high. Yes. And had yes. high proteins. Your proteins yes. were 3.3+. 3, 3
6: Protein levels, yeah, yes, those were high, but also those, those results are consistent with the results that I have been seeing in all my studies because I am focused on transition studies. And I did a previous study checking, chromium supplementation and fat supplementation and the levels, the, the, the protein levels and the fat levels, similar levels. So it's consistent.
3: Were you surprised that the starch level, the higher starch level didn't
6: affect milk protein more? It said there was no difference in yeah, milk protein. Yeah, no protein and actually there is a there is a tendency to reduce the the protein the protein content with the with the starch, the higher starch diet. And with we think that is just a dilution effect because the main effect of starch was uh, in favor of increasing meal yield. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So I've got, I've got to ask, we talked earlier before we
11: sit down, but you yeah. said you got this question yesterday yeah. as well. The starch content of your close-up yeah, the, rations.
6: Yeah, we, we tried to keep that thing as low as possible. So it was ranging between 18 and 19 percent. 18 yeah. and 19. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, do you think there's any effect going from a
11: eighteen to a twenty-two percent starch ration and an eighteen to a twenty-eight was your other yeah. starch? W- was there any interaction
6: there? I, I think that there probably could be an effect, but unfortunately, uh, I I don't recall studies doing like that kind of. Uh, arrangement of treatments for seeing the timing of supplementation of of high starch and low starch. But also you want to keep low starch as low as possible during the close-up period, you know, because everything related to the hepatic oxidation theory, if you are gonna have higher starch, you could increase uh, propionate and you you could decrease dry matter intake and that's something that we don't wanna have during that period, so. Yeah, so uh, I think we play safe, yep, because yeah, we, we, we were having cows that would be eating right. a high yeah. amount of starch during sure. the treatment period, so it was playing safe for avoiding any confusion effects as well.
3: When you're enrolling these cows, do you get a say over what this transition diet is, or is kind of the standard? MSU diet until they freshen.
6: Yeah, usually we do some tweaks. We, we we ask to our our nutritionist, okay, what are you doing right now? So, okay, if, we, if we've seen that historically there is something that is not working correctly with the closer diet, if we need to, I don't know, decrease phosphorus, increase so the decad or something like that, that's the time that we do the adjustments. And usually when do those adjustments, the farm keeps using our adjustments for the closer diet. Oh, okay. yeah. So my last question,
11: I'm going out to a dairy tomorrow, let's say it's 5,000 cows, mm-hmm. and they want to know, what's the guideline on starch and fat in those fresh cows? Where yeah. do I need to
6: be? Yeah, I guess, I guess the most important result is, is, is the interaction and seeing that fat is, having different effects in a low starch and in a high starch diet so if you are if you are not able to have i don't know too much energy or, or high in a low starch diet yes fatty acid supplementation could work for you because it was an increase in fat gel. and yes we had a, a tendency for increasing energy corrected milk but also is because having a two by two factorial is Bringing more noise and probably that, that that result that was a tendency just having two treatments could be a, a could be significant, you know. So in a low starch diet, I would I would I would say yes, use fat. In a higher star, high starch diet, I would say you need to check the fatty acid profile as well of the of the of the supplement that you'll be using. We did use a, a 70/20, so we had a lake and. Calcium salts are not complete rumen protected, so you are going to have some degradation, some liberation of the fatty acids, and we know that uh, unsaturated fatty acids could have some effect on rumen fermentation parameters. So you need to exert or be careful with with with, with your choices. So, yeah, if you have higher starch, yeah. keep keep working with the higher starch because we saw a main effect of of higher starch. But if you are in some circumstances that you don't have the opportunity to have high stash, fatty acid supplementation could be a, yeah. a, a tool for, for increasing energy-corrected milk.
0: Yeah. Here, thank you uh, for joining us uh, once again. This yeah. is your second trip here, as we mentioned yeah. before. So what are you working on now, and what can we, uh,
6: what kind of a preview can you give us for uh, next year? Um, I, I just finished my my theory study, part of my dissertation, and uh, we were checking... Uh, cotton seed inclusion and fatty acid supplementation because everything in in my dissertation is based on transition cows so i my first study was checking chromium and fatty acid supplementation and seeing if there would be possible interactions my second study is the one that i just talked the starch and fatty acid supplementation this one was like two different ways for feeding fat and see if there is an interaction there And the upcoming study I think is the most ambitious one because we'll be checking essential amino acids and three different uh, inclusion levels of fatty acids. So it's gonna be a big one, so yeah. I am excited. I'll be looking forward to it. Yeah, and probably next year I'll be here again. (laughs) All right, thank you. Talking to you guys. All right, thanks. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me.
0: And welcome back to the ADSA Scientific Sessions. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Uh, Marcos Zenobi. Welcome back, uh, Marcos. We also have guest Dr. Erickson uh, from University of uh, New Hampshire and uh, his student, Tess Stahl. So, and going to be uh, in three weeks uh, going for a PhD. So good luck with that. Thank you. All right, uh, listen, um, Dr. Erickson, would you start us off, just kind of give us some background on yourself and who you are and what you guys are about.
8: Okay, so I've been a professor at UNH for 26 years, going on 26 years, professor of dairy management, extension dairy specialist. A lot of uh, research has been in the area of uh, calf and heifer and now we're getting into the transition cow work. So uh, Tess came on board back for her master's back in 2017. And then uh, work with heifers there, and then we decided to go into the transition cow work, primarily with Jerseys, um, because Jerseys have some issues with colostrum, and that's really where we were going, uh, going to evaluate with this in this experiment. So,
0: are you a born and bred New Englander? I
8: most certainly am. You probably can tell by my accent. A little bit, (laughs) (laughs) yeah.
0: Exactly. Uh, Would you mind telling us just a little bit about Tess?
8: So Tess came to us from uh, Delaware Valley University, yeah. did her master's with, with me studying sodium butyrate in uh, post-wean heifers, uh, did a large 12-week study, um, decided to stay on for her doctorate, um, which the, this research was actually done during COVID, which made it another um, challenge for us. So uh, we, have a, we have two herds at UNH, we have a Holstein herd and a Jersey herd, and this was primarily done with jerseys um uh, Tess will be leaving us for a faculty position in a couple months so
0: oh. and you know where already uh, I guess yeah yes. can you tell us that Rutgers oh cool so. another you know, Big Ten school I yes. like that <laughs> <laughs> thank you uh Tess wonder you? but uh, by the way I was going to tell you I uh, I spent some time in Bucks County lived there for a while and down in Newtown so that's not all that far from Delaware Valley
12: no no yeah it's a beautiful area yeah
0: absolutely um Would you mind giving us kind of the hypothesis and objective of of the study that we're gonna be talking about today?
12: Sure, so Pete and I had talked about investigating this issue with clostrum yield in jerseys based on a paper that came out in JDS in 2018. The author is Gavin, and it came out of Washington State Vet School. Um, But the cows were in Texas and they did this very large trial. They looked at both primiparous, excuse me, primiparous and multiparous cows and all, a lot of factors that are influencing colostrum yield. And they had observed that a lot of the multiparous cows produced very low amounts of colostrum. They did see a seasonal effect of it. So primarily happening in the late fall and winter, and then picking back up again in the spring. So we, you know, they were really weren't sure what, was happening with it. They had a hypothesized photoperiod but they really weren't solid on anything else other than that. So he and I had talked about, I had read in an endocrinology journal about the connection between hypocalcemia and the mammary epithelial cells and their ability to bring calcium into the mammary gland and how it's connected to the osmolality. And so if there's low calcium there's low yield, so not as much water coming in. And so we kind of thought maybe the um, decad diet would help. And there's really been no research evaluating levels of DCAD in jerseys. What would be appropriate for them? So we wanted to make those connections between can we really hone in on a level of DCAD that would work for jerseys and help improve the yield? And the nicotinic acid part of the trial was due to work from UNH with Holsteins that saw 32 grams a day resulted in the best response for both the cows and the calves. They saw a increase in purine derivatives, so they thought microbial protein synthesis. uh, Nicotinic acid is a known vasodilator, so more blood flow, more amino acid flow. To the mammary gland, and they saw an increase in IgG concentration on that trial. So,
0: is nicotinic acid also uh, anti-lipolytic?
12: Yes. No
8: niacin is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a, that's another term for niacin.
12: Yeah. So it's, okay. Yep. Oh,
8: so okay. yeah. So, so it's a yeah, no. Yeah.
12: no, it's just the um, unprotected.
0: Okay, got it. Niacin. So more of a rumen effect. Yes.
12: Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So a ruminal effect exactly, and then they saw that. The calves were more feed efficient in the first three weeks of life. So something was improved with niacin supplementation that resulted in small intestine development in the calves, which was some pretty cool stuff. So we wanted to do both. Can we improve both colostrum quality and quantity? And we took the 32 and edited it for the metabolic body size of Jerseys, So we wound up at 23 grams a day of nicotinic acid. And then I took the minus 80 DCAD, which is deemed optimal for Holsteins, and cut it in half, no real science, just wanted to see if going something more towards zero would be better for the Jersey breed. And that's what we had hoped would happen. Yeah, we would hope that we'd get the improvement in yield and quality, Mm so.
13: So uh, it's pretty nice, the, the design that you have. It's pretty interesting. So especially when you talk about niacin and the role in rumen, because usually we focus more on the anti effects.
8: Mm-hmm.
13: But getting into the results, I think that you saw some anti results. Um, did we see uh, less I, less fat and yes. more protein, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. yes, yes. So um, maybe we can go into the results and see your hypothesis behind the results? Sure.
12: Better. Yeah. So the f- One of the first things that we did with the calves on day five of life was we did a xylose challenge. So to explain it a little bit, you supplement D-xylose. You take a blood sample before the supplementation and then you put the D-xylose in their morning milk, mix it in, remove their grain for the day and take blood samples every few hours until 12 hours. And we had seen the increase in circulating xylose concentration in the calves that came from nicotinic acid supplemented cows which was pretty cool and so now that was verifying that feed efficiency in the first three weeks that was seen with the Holstein calves.
13: Kind of repeating the results.
12: Yes Yes. yep just wanted to see was it true (laughs) basically and then um, since we had we had observed the problem with yield as everyone else has seen too with jerseys and We had to put a minimum for colostrum, so calves received a minimum of two liters to enroll of maternal colostrum, and up to a gallon, and anything in between those two numbers. We had to set that baseline because 10 cows produced less than two liters, so not enough to even feed the calf.
0: And was that based on trying to get a certain amount of IgG into them? And if so, what was that
8: amount? It
12: was just to, yeah, so just enough to meet the baseline that they would need to meet um, the passive of transfer immunity.
8: Yeah. So we tried, you know, standard operating procedures, are give give them four liters, give them a gallon approximately. And uh, we basically had to go and say, all right, we had to have a cutoff somewhere because they had to get some. And some of her, one of her cows produced zero colostrum. Mm-hmm. So it was a, was a bit of a challenge. So, and this is an ongoing problem.
9: So.
12: And we had, because of the results with the calves in the Holsteins, we had looked at a lot of the bioactive compounds that affect calf intestinal development. So lactoferrin, IGF-1, insulin um, and transforming growth factor beta-1 and 2, just to see what did niacin do? what, What was improved? And so we really didn't see much difference in concentration, but we saw that there was a greater amount of lactoferrin fed to calves that came from nicotinic acid supplemented cows.
13: Could you please, us? give us more background about that bioactive? Sure. Lacto- so
12: lactoferrin is causing um, cell proliferation. And so it's creating a more developed intestine, more absorptive cells. And so things can absorb faster, in theory, and they would become more efficient, or you hope. <laughs> and So that lactoferrin and then with IGF-1, kind of a similar uh, mechanism of action. Um, We saw an interaction effect with the minus 40 with nicotinic acid cows providing the most IGF-1 to calves. Um, And the minus 80 width was still pretty high. Um, It just, the interaction was at the minus 40 width. So two things that help with calf intestinal development, so we saw that data we were really excited and then we hypothesized okay well that means they're going to be more feed efficient then and we did not see the result in feed efficiency so the minus 40 calves without and with nicotinic acid or niacin were equally as feed efficient and then there was a decrease with the minus 80. so the only thing i can gather is that the minus 80 is too harsh of a decad and it we're kind of seeing some not as bad, but some similar effects for when you feed a minus 180 mil equivalent per kilogram dry matter in Holsteins. They saw a lot of fetal programming and so there might be something happening with that that's negating any benefits we're seeing in the intestinal development.
13: Okay, And in the field, in general, what is the recommended dose of Ticat for jerseys?
12: Well, there is is none.
8: none. (laughs) none. We're we're going to say, based on her data, minus 40. Okay.
12: But hopefully someone looks into it further, because I wouldn't even say the 40 was the best.
8: Is that in the plan
13: for the Well,
8: so right now we're going to continue on with a similar study, looking at um, various amounts. Twenty-three grams appears to be a little too high, mm-hmm. so the next study will be 0, 8, and sixteen grams to see if we can figure out that's that. Studies due to get going in the fall
13: okay. yep. and always unprotected. Uh, yep.
8: Yeah, yeah, that's what we've been we've been using. So, so.
12: Yeah, when they did the Holstein work, the, the they did incremental dosing, and the forty-eight grams was too much, mm-hmm. and we saw some similar results with the, the 23 in jerseys, so that's why I hypothesized it probably was a little bit too much for the jerseys. Yeah.
13: So I, I read the after and it's pretty complete and you talk about some fatty acids specific, yes. 16, 19. Yeah. Can you expand a little bit on that and the benefit?
12: Yeah, I wish I had room to put it on the poster. There's a lot of data.
13: <laughs> there is a backside.
12: Yeah. Oh yeah, I should have <laughs> flipped it over. <laughs> so we had um, help from Mike Steele, Thank you, Mike Steele. And, um, he had helped us analyze the, uh, fat, got the fatty acid profile in the colostrum. So we had from C20, C4 to C24, one double bond. And we saw a lot of the effect of decad. So the minus 80 lowering a lot of our longer chain fatty acids. Okay. Um, so a lot of the C18 and C20, is it? Or
13: more essential, probably? Yeah,
8: yeah.
12: yeah. Well, so, seems to be that way, yeah. So I don't, so seems, there's yeah. not a lot of work with that and how that those fatty acids are impacting the calf. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully someone can look at that. <laughs> Maybe Guelph is going too soon, but um, we, we really don't know, is it good, okay, or bad that they're lowered? But we did see the DCAD really, primarily a lot of significance there in lowering these fatty acids. Nice. So, yeah.
13: I, I do remember the trials from Dr. Staple from University of Florida yeah. that he got really nice results supplementing essential fatty acids yeah. in baby calves. So yes. really nice yep. yep. results. Yeah.
0: This has been very interesting. I think Marcus, I think we could do a full episode on oh, this. Yes. But <laughs> we are gonna have, yeah. have to wrap this one up. When do you start uh, your career over there at Rutgers?
12: Fingers crossed for September 1.
0: September 1? Yes. All right. Well, I will be there on November 4th tailgating. Okay. (laughs) There's an Ohio State Rutgers game that I will be attending. So if you you want to come on out, uh, you're invited. (laughs) All right. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, all right. Listen, thank you for joining us today. Thank thank you very much. Thank Thank you.
4: Tonight's last call question is brought to you by Niasher, Precision Release Niacin. Niacin is a proven vasodilator for heat stress reduction and a powerful antilipolytic agent for lowering high-blood NEFA in transition cows. Protected with Balchem's proprietary encapsulation technology, you can be sure it is being delivered where and when your cows need it. Learn more at balchem.com slash
0: Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Vinicius Machado from Texas Tech. My uh, my co-hosts. I got two of them. Vinicius, uh, we usually just go with one. This is so important. You're so impressive that we had to have two. So uh, we're. We're going with uh, Dr. Jeff Elliott and uh, uh, Dr. Pete Morrow. Uh, they're both technical service representatives from, from Balcam. Uh Vinicius, would you mind just giving me kind of a little bit of background on yourself? What's your uh, pedigree in terms of education and uh, kind of your path to where you are today?
14: All right, so I, I'm originally from Brazil and I got my uh, degree in veterinary medicine in the Federal University of Goiás. Uh, That was 2008, right around when I came to the U.S. I worked under the supervision of Dr. Rodrigo Bicalho at Cornell University. Got my Ph.D. there in 2015, and then did two years of of, uh, dairy medicine residency there on an ambulatory setting, and once I finished that in 2017, I went to Texas Tech to get a, a Assistant, uh, assistant professor position there, and I've been there since
0: then. Okay, Yeah. very well. So now I was looking at the title of your presentation, which was management of beef on dairy calves. Should we raise them differently? And so that's interesting. Uh, can, can you give me a little bit of, uh, of an idea of, should we, should we uh, raise them differently?
14: And that's kind of like once I was like preparing for the presentation, I was like, "Oh, that was a mistake to <laughs> give that type of title." Because once you go to a presentation where you have like a question in the title, yeah, you assume that the presenter is going to, to give you it. the answer, or at least like some good ideas about the answer. And then really, I was like, "Oh, I, I don't have answers." Like to be honest, like it, isn't that
0: typical research? You come back with more answers than uh, questions or uh, questions than answers.
14: Yeah, and but. But you still expect to have some yeah. answers out sure. of it. But the, uh, uh, I think we're such an initial stage, at least on the research side, yeah. like to learn how these calves are, because right before you change management, like you actually have to understand what are the goals, right, of mm-hmm. what are the goals of raising these calves. And uh, the co-author of the abstract and my colleague, at, uh, collaborator at uh, Texas Tech, Mike Ballou, uh, we, we talk, I talked a lot with him about this kind of things, and like uh, calf management is not really my bread and butter. I work more on the reproductive sides, but, uh, we're, but Mike works a lot with calves, and talking to him, and we, we seem to understand that the goal of uh, raising dairy, beef, da- uh, beef, cal- uh, beef on dairy calves, it's, um, it's a lot more short term. Than like raising replacement heifers Mm -hmm. because replacement when you're replacing uh, raising replacement heifers you're thinking about like how they're going to do when they reach lactation with these beef on dairy calves all you want to do is to get them on the right weight at the right age so you can sell them right so the the owner of the calves like they don't on like they don't retain ownership until they go to the like or when they get to the feedlot so there's really this disconnect on uh what can we do better or differently during the even like pre-weaning period that you have so many uh early life experiences that can impact their uh, performance when they're mature at least in terms of uh, dairy cows and we have no idea how that's impacting their performance and. the in the feedlot later on and then like when you think about uh health issues especially related to uh liver abscesses which seems to be a really big concern i guess of the industry right now uh, that's some of the uh during my presentation i explore some of those possibilities or some of those uh things that happen differently in the calf range that it's not happening for example on a cow calf operation
11: yeah I definitely want to come back to the liver abscesses later, but first, since the dairy farmers are not retaining ownership, are they not doing things, maybe from colostrum management or just when that calf is born, that's affecting that calf when she hits that beef operation?
14: Yeah, I think historically, uh, I would say I want to... I don't want to use this word like don't get me wrong but like let's say that uh, the dairy farmer used to neglect the double the calves right i think historically that was the the trend now i think things had improved a lot more and to be honest like you go to dairies and the cows that are bred with a uh, beef semen they are marked because now like they the dairy farmers are like paying a lot more attention to those calves and they are actually I think they're doing as good with those beef calves as they're doing with their like, uh, uh, heifer calves. So I don't think that's necessarily a concern, but again, like it, they sell them to a calf raising facility. Usually like you still see some owners, like especially larger farms, uh, retaining ownership of those beef and dairy calves. Uh, but usually they just sell to, a uh calf range and the calf range really what they want to do is just like get those calves to the right uh, weight the cheapest way possible which does not necessarily that is the bad way of doing things but really like i don't know if uh, we're optimizing or if we really understand what are the things that we can do differently so we can have those calves perform better in uh, later on when they go to the feedlot
11: do you think there's any opportunity for these dairies to hang on to the calf, maybe through weaning? I don't know if you've looked at the finances, but could they get more for those calves? Because if they haven't transported them, they know they've got good colostrum into them. Um, is there an advantage to doing that? Or? I wonder. I really don't know if that would be something they would, uh,
14: would be... Because like from what I know, most people they just run out of space in their dairies. I think they would have to put up a lot of like infrastructure to hold like more of those calves. I've seen like I was in a dairy the other day that uh, the guy just built a bunch of like group pens. So instead of having individual hutches, which is what he has been doing for his uh, uh, heifer calves, he just built up like he has like those super hutches and have group pens of like I think it was like five or six calves per pen and that's like a little less costly and he's uh, holding for uh, on those calves and I think he's actually holding until selling to a feedlot. I don't think it's just just through weaning. I think he holds until like the calves
3: is about like, uh, I don't know, like six months of age and then sells to a feedlot. In the traditional beef uh, industry, age and source verification has become very important. Do you see that coming as a possibility for these dairy calves? what do you mean by that like uh where, where they'd be born and uh you know what went how old they are versus mm-hmm. you know just a guest birth date
14: well i think this is like i feel that like if we go use the word traceability i guess i think that's way easier to do that in the dairy farm than in the beef right because on the dairy, that we just collect data all the time like in the dairy farm like there's data collected on like in some dairies they even do like uh, what was the total uh total serum protein of that calf all the way through all health related events some uh farms they collect like birth weight winning weight so they know like what was the average daily gain different times of the uh of the life cycle of the calf so there's so much data and i think that's one of the big advantages of the beef on dairy calves versus the traditional beef uh, animals is just the traceability, at, at least on data, it's very strong on the dairy side and not so much on beef. So I, what I like to say is that, like, we have to find a way that we can correlate, not correlate, but like link all the information that we have during that, like, calf hood uh, part of the life cycle with the performance later on in the feedlot. Because the feedlot also collect a lot of data, but I don't think they collect, uh, and it's just hard to collect data like on individual animals just because they're all in group pens. Like you might have like some health re- uh, health related events, but not so much on like feed intake or individual uh, weights, right? Uh, but once we, s- that's probably how research should go towards that, that path that we can understand what are the if the performance during early life and health events and so on is associated with the performance later in life. And so if so, like how can we change to uh, optimize the production
3: of those animals? So we could use the abundant data available. And in in the case of dairy, they would even know the sire. They'd have sire information, which would be pretty unique. Use that to create a more valuable product, even if it's just to the feedlots Mm -hmm. or if they could retain ownership possibly uh the end product and
14: again like i feel that like it's understanding what is the what is being valued right like on, if i'm on if i'm a dairy farmer right like my priority it's to milk cows to make those cows uh get bred or get pregnant on time get uh, uh get good milk production and then dairy, or at least in the past, like, I want to say, like, maybe five years, you have this opportunity with those beef on dairy calves that they can get, like, a better price for those one-day-old calves. Uh, and that's kind of, but, and that's the value they're getting. Like, if they're going to get any more value on all the data they are collecting, I really don't know if the beef part of this cycle is really interested in that. Mm-hmm. And that's where I like, they're probably not interested because they don't, understand the value and I I think only through research that we can really say like all right so these calves here they don't have like uh, let's say they double their and that's like a a benchmark that we use for uh, replacement heifers oh we have to double their birth weight by weaning right Mm -hmm. is that really relevant for uh, beef and dairy calves if it is like I think then we can market those animals a little better and maybe like holding them like uh, until they're weaned, might be something that's going to be of uh, economical advantage for the dairy farmer as well.
3: Almost like a certified
14: preconditioning program. I, I guess that would be like the way to go, right? Because right now, like we really don't know what to value because we don't understand
11: what's uh, what's important. Yeah, Venice just one last question before we go. You talked about uh, liver abscesses, and of course, we're we're kind of in that business. Mm-hmm. Um, are you finding the liver abscesses? Is it greater in these beef on dairy animals versus regular beef
14: what's that that that's my understanding uh that those beef on dairy calves they have uh, a higher prevalence of liver abscesses at uh, slaughter and any thoughts on why that yeah so it's greater than just hosting steers for example and greater than traditional beef right so those up your bread let's let's say Angus just for uh, for the purpose of this so and the we really don't understand exactly where that's coming from so it became like a game of like oh let's blame the calf uh, the calf ranches because they're raising because if you compare the differences there are so many differences so those calves are transported early in life they are usually on a restricted liquid feed diet right so they they're not drinking milk as much as they could if they were just with their, uh, with their dams, right? Uh, those calves are weaned, or at least they stopped receiving uh, milk about like, let's say 60 days of age. Some people even do like 45 days uh, of uh, feeding milk. And if you compare that again, like to the traditional beef system, they stay with their dams for like the first six months and they're eating pasture while those uh, calves and like those beef and dairy calves they're eating uh uh they're eating uh calf starter as a a solid feed and they're eating more calf starter than uh hosting calves and earlier too so they they're eating a lot more of that and a calf starter like i'm not a nutritionist so don't uh, get too uh too hard on me on this but my understanding like the calf starter is like pretty comparable to a finishing diet in terms of uh, energy so I think a lot of people just think that we're preconditioning those calves to uh, develop r- uh, ruminal acidosis when they get to, uh, uh, to the feedlot and because like oh if they get and we know ruminal acidosis is a, a risk factor for liver abscesses but again like we don't know any of that could, could it be genetics uh it can be that too so we're still like trying to uh figure out and understand what's making that be such a problem but again i was talking to a professor he was at uc davis so he a lot of his uh, current data is from there like pedro carvalho and he's now in uh, csu uh, Colorado state he's a more of a beef guy and he is doing some work with beef on dairy animals as well And while we hear about like, oh, 60% of uh, some uh, uh, 50, uh, like 60, 50% of uh, beef on dairy animals are having like liver abscesses. Uh, His uh, incidence was like 2%, 1% on beef on dairy. So it seems to have like some regional differences too that we really don't understand where that's coming from. Uh, We know that the feeding behavior of uh, those beef-on-dairy animals, at least compared to uh, Holstein steers, it's very different. So they drink more like during the pre-weaning period, they drink more milk, they grow more. I'm not sure if they're growing more because, only because they drink more milk, I think they're also like are eating more starter, and that's just based on what we hear. Uh, But we just did a study and those were weaned animals and only 10 animals per group and that w- we were not even like interested in comparing those there were just like two different studies one was uh with uh beef on dairy uh cat um, i was gonna call steers because they're uh, a little older like four months of age and we had some hosting steers as well and we were like the study was uh we were uh, developing not developing but uh, uh testing some different diet uh, testing some different diets on uh, development of liver abscesses and it was with a model uh, to uh, uh, it's a challenge model for the induction of liver abscesses the the beef on dairy calves had eighty percent liver abscesses by the end of the study the hosting steers only thirty percent and they were on the same diet we knew that those, like then the data showed us that those uh, bifondary uh, steers were eating a lot more dry matter than the Holstein steers. And because the challenge model, you have like a, uh, different uh, cycles of like changing from uh, basal diet to acidotic diet, and then basal diet again. You see that in the first change uh, from basal to acidotic diet, both groups of animals they decrease dry matter intake, and then they recover, and then once once the diet was changing again, only the hosting steers were dropping uh, dry matter. The beef on dairy steers kept eating, and they never dropped again until they were uh, orally inoculated with bacteria. So I think they're just like it's just a not going to say like completely different animal, but yeah. they have different behaviors. There's definitely some unknowns. Yeah, and this. we are, yeah. again, like, uh, we're pretty much like managing them the same way. Yeah, And I think we should manage them differently, but I don't know exactly how.
0: Well, I'm sure you're going to figure it out one day. And uh, a very important subject and obviously more to to know. Vinicius want to thank you for joining us today. This has been uh, very interesting uh, and it's a great one to, to end the week on. Right. This is the last one this week. It's been a successful week, right? We've heard some great scientists, we heard from some great science, great scientists, great students. Uh, it's just been a, a, an amazing week. Um, I want to thank our loyal listeners for coming along with us uh, this week on our journey. I uh, hope you learned something, hope you had some fun, and I hope to see you next time here at Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.
4: We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests, so please reach out via email to anh.marketing at with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot, along with your address and t-shirt size, to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.